Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, hey, very few of us, I believe, relish chaos and disruption. But they are facts of life, given the non-negotiable nature of change. Today, we're going to talk about how to tune into the value of disruption and learn how to sit with chaos. My guest is Zenju Earthland Manuel. She's an ordained Zen priest. She holds a PhD. She worked for decades as a social science researcher and as a development director for nonprofits. She's also a prolific author. We'll be covering a few of her books in today's episode. We're also going to talk about what to do with the unknown and not having any answers, the power of, and this is her term, a sip of silence, what she means by the phrase death as a doorway to tenderness, her extraordinary story about her unusual route to becoming a Zen priest, how she defines tenderness, a word that can easily get bogged down in sloppy sentimentality, and what she meant when she wrote the following lines. I'm not advocating love as an answer to all of the ills of the world. Then again, it's just that simple to be love. So a lot to talk about here. Uh, Just a heads up, there are some mentions of assault, spiritual, sexual, and substance abuse, and racism, including a recent incident that uh, Zenju experienced herself. Before we get to my chat with Zenju, one item of business, great news. If you want to hear more of Zenju, which I suspect you will after having listened to this interview, uh, we've brought her wisdom into the 10% Happier app where she has recorded her very own teacher talk. Teacher talks are bite-sized recorded talks, about 10 minutes or less, available inside the 10% Happier app featuring many of the teachers that you know and love from this podcast Download the 10% Happier today and click on the Podcasts tab in the app to find Zenju's talk, which is called It's Okay to Be Afraid. We will get started with Zenju Earthland Manuel right after this. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher, and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. What I've been checking out recently is called Our Share of Night. It's technically, I guess, a horror, but it's definitely literature. I mean, it's incredibly well-written, absolutely fascinating, and it really does rhyme with some of the themes that we explore uh, on this show. Highly recommend it, although I'm only uh, through the the first 15-20% of it, but already I highly recommend it. 
As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. Send you Earthland Manuel. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning. Good afternoon, wherever you are, <laughs> Dan. <laughs> afternoon, where I am, yes. Leo and I were chatting before we started the interview, and we're just talking about how the world is a pretty tumultuous place right now. And you have spoken publicly and written about the value of disruption. Can you mm-hmm. describe what you mean by that? Yeah, I've talked about it, and I also have gotten in trouble (laughs) for saying it. And it gets confusing. It's like, what am I trying to say? Am I trying to get people to accept suffering in some way? And that is not really the uh, the intention of the teaching. This teaching, for me, of looking at disruption— as valuable, meaning that it is the place in which we change and transform, that we transform in the midst of messiness. (laughs) So a lot of folk want to transform, but they want it to be nice and neat and clean and painless and all of these kinds of things. And my experience is it doesn't happen that way at all. In my life, the things that have changed have been when I've fallen off the cliff, let's say, (laughs) in the quote, when I hit the ground. So I learned that, oh, I think when I was in my 20s, I began to notice that, oh, life just keeps going. Trouble keeps happening. You know, this isn't going to stop. But of course, I didn't accept it. So I went about trying to change things in my own life and change things in the world. And I would get frustrated and disappointed And um, sort of like these times, some people feel like we're moving backwards, are standing still, we're not moving ahead, are these kinds of things. And so when the disruption comes, it doesn't necessarily mean that we are uh, moving backwards or standing still. I actually feel that there's something dynamic going on, and that's why the disruption is happening. Sort of like an earthquake, right? The ground shakes. There's some kind of dynamic movement or action in the earth that's causing, you know, an earthquake. And and I, I want to stop right here and just send out a prayer to Haiti in the midst of the, the last earthquake. That's what came up for me just in the moment. So I want to do that. So as a person who was raised in disruption. You know, I was part of the Watts riot. I was a person doing things. I was near it. I was living near it. So that when we went to the grocery store, there was the, uh, the National Guard with their guns and everything. That's how close we were to it. There was just always trouble. In my school, there were riots, you know, and things around race. There was all kinds of stuff going on. I myself you know, have been um, caught up in some pretty snarly incidents. And so, you know, I always wanted things to be better, like no more racism, no more oppression, no more hate, no more anything. And of course, that is always the aspiration. It's always the vow. But most important, I know that if something stops, like say we don't have any more Racism, let's just say that. We have no more of it. That means something else will take its place. We don't know what it is. So there's always something. That's why we have so many movements now. I think that's wonderful because all of these movements and climate change, you know, movement around police brutality, movement around, um, you know, racism, movement around poverty, you know, all these different areas that are happening And we could go crazy running off trying to make sure all of that gets, you know, cleared up and taken care of. That's kind of our attitude to fix it. But mainly I feel like disruptions are here for us to transform within and without so that if it changes us within, it will change what's going on without. The more and more we ignore it, I think the more disruptions we will have. And sometimes I feel like I told a friend this and she felt that sounds so fatal. You know, that's fatalism. And 
That's not what I'm saying. It's what I see. And I think we're at a really point in the world, not only our country, where the disruptions are getting more intense and they're increasing and they're more often because something really is trying to wake us up. Not us wake us up. We think we can wake ourselves up and we can to a certain extent. But there is a place that's unseen and uncontrollable by the human being. And we have to understand that. And then to allow things to change, the dynamic of the disruption to change us. And if we force against it, I think we keep falling back into an old place because the disruption becomes a wall as opposed to a more porous or malleable barrier or obstacle that we actually can go through. We can actually go through these disruptions. And it doesn't feel like it often, but we can. So if we're using the disruptions, if I use all that has happened to me, then I can contribute to society from having those experiences and having, which most of us are doing anyway, and having, you know, come through them is where all of my poetry, all my other writings and teachings, my showing up here to talk on the podcast has to do with that at the same time everything was happening to me, there was a transformation also happening to me. So while we're in this dive, sometimes we're also in flight. It, and, but we don't mm-hmm. know. So some people, well, I want to feel the flight. <laughs> I don't want to feel the dive. You know, so that can cause problems too because they're both at the same time. That's like if someone gives you a coin, you say, well, I don't really, or a dollar. I don't, you know, nobody gets coins anymore. <laughs> Not even a dollar. <laughs> oh, I don't want that, that dollar, you know, but I, I want some money. You know, so it's kind of like you can't, you have to take the dollar to get the money and deal with everything involved in the dollar, everything that that is involved and attached to the dollar. So that's how I, I see disruption is actually, I've actually begun to, well, at a period of time, I say in my practice, I begin to stop suffering the suffering and begin to actually enjoy it. Even while I was in pain and in tears, traumatized and everything else, but I knew, I knew and I still know, because I'm still in a dive, I'm always in a dive, that something's coming through that disruption or darkness for me and for us and everyone around me and us. So I know that that's the way change happens. That's the way transformation happens. A lot of casualties along the way. Or maybe I might not make it. There'll be a dive I won't make. That's guaranteed, right? (laughs) I won't make one of the dives and I'll be gone. But all along, there'll be all these dives, all of this turmoil and suffering. And it's to be used like fodder. It's mud. We, We know this. It's the mud for the lotus flower. It has to have murky nutrients, and that's the way our lives are. I can imagine some people thinking, uh, who are listening, thinking, well, I don't know how to sit with this, in this dive. I can't get comfortable with it. How do I do that? You know, this is where I have to have what's called beginner's mind, right? You've heard that. I have. And I always try to walk in that way of what was it like when I didn't know the Dharma, Buddhism, when I didn't know Nishra Buddhism or Zen Buddhism, just trying to like, I'll try to flush myself away from all of that kind of um, conditioning, spiritual conditioning. And when that question is asked, because I know the majority of people have not been on that path, a path of Dharma or Buddhism or even meditation. So quite a few people feel in the middle of chaos, they want to start a a meditation practice. I, in some way, discourage it if it's very new to you, because it's right now your system's used to dealing with chaos in the way it has been dealing with it the moment before, the day before. When I started sitting meditation, I only did five minutes a day. And over the decades, it grew to me being able to sit at Long, long retreats, you know, eight hours a day, 
that took decades. So starting out at five minutes is a lot. Like one minute's a lot. One minute is a lot to sit still in silence or quiet just to breathe, take a breath in and out. And I would say just do that. You know, in the moments, just try to let go for a moment of all the the news, you know, you're reading or hearing, to not read as much, to let go of some of the conversations that we're having just for a moment. You can always go back to the conversation. But if you take some time to just stop and, and just breathe in and breathe out as long as you can, even if it's a minute, that's a lot, a minute or two minutes, then when you start to engage in the world, even if it's cutting the onion, that's your next engagement, <laughs> you know, or talking to someone, a friend or a partner on the phone, it will have a different tone just with one or two minutes of sitting because you will be speaking from your heart and not with swirling in the minds. So when most of the people we hear talking or even on other podcasts, there's a lot of swirling in the mind. Even for myself, I had to come and sit and, and, and be prepared after swirling around. I had gotten lost coming here, <laughs> you know, and these kinds of things. And I had to really work at from driving to sitting here with you to get back at the breath and to be able to speak from my heart because I have a lot of ideas, I, and most of us do. I'm well-read. You know, I have a Ph.D. I'm a researcher, so I look up everything. So I really have to work hard to allow the body to lead me on this path of life. And what people say, well, what does that mean? You just react or you just respond to whatever's in your gut. No, I try to see what's in my gut. If there's fear, I don't start to analyze the fear. I just note that there's fear. And I go, oh, there's, there's your friend, fear. And then I just have a few breaths with fear. We have, it's like having tea with fear. <laughs> a few breaths, and then fear goes and sits down someplace else. And then I can go back. But then the fear comes back. It keeps coming back. That's its job to keep tapping me on the shoulder, reminding me of something about myself that's are inside myself that is bothersome. You know, and that's kind of what sitting still does. It lets you see what bothers you. And I know a lot of people ask me, you know, they say, I want to be calm. Can you tell me how to be calm? <laughs> and I don't have the answer to that. I really, sometimes I'm joking, but you really can get some teas and herbs and extra help to calm you, to help during these times. And I think there's no problem with that if, you know, you, you've gotten it from someone you trust, you know, a professional herbalist or someone, or a place or a doctor where you, that help your nervous system, you know, slow down in this uh, great time of trouble and turmoil. But where I'm speaking from is not from that place because I'm not a doctor and I'm not a, a professional in the healing arts. I'm coming from, and it's important for you to know, the context is Zazen, Zen meditation. And Zen meditation is very different, too, than all meditations. So I'm coming from that place so you can understand that when I say sit, be still, and just be quiet, that's not what every tradition does. And that's not all that Zen does either. We do chant and walk, and we do walking meditation and different kinds of things. But I think I'm just offering from this base of barring there's no psychological or physical problems with you that you need to get other help for, then I am just inviting this daily sip of tea, which is a sip of silence, ever so often throughout the day or whenever you can, just a sip of silence. You know, you can wait for those phone calls that are coming through, those texts that are coming through. They can wait a minute or two. And it's remarkable because then it might stretch to five or ten minutes. And then you're like, wow, okay. You start to notice that even though there's a lot of chaos, there's a lot of chaos you're creating yourself too. 
on top of the chaos that's being imposed. And also not to try to get out of, you know, try to fix everything, to make a, a paradise for us to live in or for yourself to live in, but to, to use the trouble of living. The trouble of life is all there is, really. And if we don't use it, then we're not living. We're not even engaged. And I've, I've done that. <laughs> I've tried not to engage. And it's a weird life. When you don't engage. And I don't mean you have to go and engage in uh, movements, because now engagement all of a sudden equals go out and march. I, you can do that. It's not what I'm saying. Anyone can do that. But just engage in the moment to be present with the pain, the suffering, just for a moment, if you can. And some people need help with that. That's why I don't prescribe medication, excuse me, medication or meditation. Either one. I don't prescribe neither one. <laughs> medication or meditation. And that's because it's not for everyone. Meditation is not. It's actually for a very rare group of people, a very small and rare group of people, those who are seeking, those who are open to a quest an inquiry of what is this life and how am I living it? Who am I? And getting no answer to none of it at all. It's just the process. No, there's no answer to those questions. That's that rare group is willing to live in that ambiguity. But those who are using it for results, that's fine. I'm not against that. I wonder what kind of results they're getting. I know there's a lot of scientific research going on now. And they're just coming up with what we already know, which is usually what science does. It, you know, it, which is good. It, it, some people need that hardcore affirmation that's written down in words with some numbers. It's quantified and qualified. I was a researcher, so I understand. You know, I did a lot of social science research. So it's important to document, but it doesn't have the answer. No one and nothing has the answer to anything. Isn't that scary? <laughs> well, so what are we left to do then? Just be with not trying to find answers and fix things, but be in the discovery of things. We are to continually discover. So when I meet, say, what if I meet you next week? I will have to rediscover you and you rediscover me. But you might come and say, well, I kind of, I know Zenju now, we had a discussion. I said, yeah, I know Dan, we had a really good talk together, but we don't. And so continuously, we don't. Even if I've known you for 20 years, there's always something unknown. And to see the beauty of that, to see the beauty and sacredness of the unknown in our lives. And so when I think I really know something, because we're all very smart, and I get to that place like, oh, yes, I know that already. I've heard that before, you know, in Buddhism. I heard that teaching before. And then when I look at it again, something new about it comes to mind. That's the beginner's mind. Something new about that thing, that person, that idea, that movement comes new to me. And I'm very, like, surprised of it. You know, I had been doing some work with someone around boundaries. And it was very, you know, somatic-based or psychological-based. And then up popped in the middle of that this idea of spiritual boundary. Because I started looking at empaths. Because there's a lot of sensitive and empathic people, including myself, today where it's they're more sensitive and more empathic because there's so much going on. So I said, oh my gosh, there's that spiritual boundary as well. And in all the years, I just never put it all together that way. So there's an integration that can happen in the pause and in the discovery of things. The reason why, when I really feel like I know something, I'm going to go back to that. I think about, I really don't know where I came from like period, like as a human being. And none of us know. We know uh, <laughs> we know physiology and biology, and we have all those answers. Science lets us know where we came from and how we got here, but we don't know where we came from. We don't know why we're here whatsoever. Why are we going through all of this? What is the purpose? And we don't know where we're going, and we're all going 
all of us. <laughs> that is amazing to me. To be faced with this unknown, it could be a dilemma, <laughs> a shadow following us constantly, or it could be a place of discovery. All the way, all the way, all the way to the end. Steve Jobs, I heard that when he was dying, and I really liked that, you know, this thing he, that they said he said he was like really dying in that moment. And I know he's a researcher because of what he created, and he's a visionary. So he was dying, and in his last moment, he said, oh, wow. And I have held <laughs> on to that. <laughs> and I was just like, okay, I'm following Steve <laughs> wherever he went, you know? <laughs> and he said, wow. And it was just, I felt it. He was still in that way of being that helped him to be a visionary. He was still in that to the moment he was dying. To me, that was his greatest moment, not when he created Apple, but when he did, died and said, wow, that was his greatest mm -hmm. moment to me. So, like, I haven't forgotten it. Much more of my conversation with Zenju Earthland manuel right after this. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high-quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash happier. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash happier. Just go to Indeed.com slash happier right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash happier. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You've written very movingly about death as a doorway to, and the word you use is tenderness. I use that word with a little bit of hesitation because it's the kind of word that, you know, a certain type of person, um, I'm not going to name any names, but his initials are Dan Harris, uh, might hear the word tenderness and, and like just be tempted to overlook mm -hmm. it because it seems a bit maybe like a Hallmark <laughs> card or something like that. Yeah. However, you, you write very powerfully about tenderness, too. So I don't know if I'm giving you a pointed question here, but I'm interested to hear more about you since you brought up death and how it can lead to tenderness. And what do you have in mind when you say tenderness? Death, no matter how many times I have been at the bedside of people who have taken their last breath, it's a profound 
moment and inside me, I feel the most authentic and the most open being that I can be. I don't even feel like I'm myself in the moment, myself the way I describe and define myself. I just feel I could, like a being that could be human or anything. And I just watching the last breath and the sacredness of it and the way I have no tension in my body at the time. And I feel very soft in the grief, in the tears. While painful, I feel very soft, like I could be a plant energy or something. It's so soft, and I don't feel myself that way every day, every moment. You know, I feel tense, sometimes enraged, sometimes whatever, frustrated, go watch something on TV, and then I get frustrated with what they're saying and doing, you know, all kinds of, you know, just continues. These emotions are nonstop. But in death, when I have witnessed death, the emotion that's there is grief, sadness, sorrow. It could be despair for some, and maybe even fear. But there's just this softness that I would like to hone more every day so that even when I engage in the world, I engage whatever there is to engage in my own life that I do it from this place of gentleness and and softness. Now, does it mean because you're gentle or soft that you can't be powerful and strong and whatever else you feel tenderness isn't? (laughs) You cannot. It doesn't mean you can't be that. It just means that when you take action, you're taking it from this very open, sacred, slow could be gentle, could be rough too, place that opens your heart. What is it that opens your heart? This is tenderness. What is happening now? Many of us are going through tenderness. (laughs) And the tenderness could be where you're just caught in emotion. You're just suffering. Or it could be the tenderness, you're paralyzed. Some people get very paralyzed. When something makes them vulnerable, they get paralyzed because that's mostly from trauma and other times when they have had pain or suffering. But then there's this very powerful, liberating tenderness where you're still feeling all the emotions. You may even have some paralysis, but there's some way in which you are still present and engaged with the tenderness. And I think Thich Nhat Hanh says it like this, when a baby's crying, how a mother is tender with that baby our guardian, our father, whoever is guarding that baby, there is this way of touching into the your your baby, your cry, your tenderness, your pain, in a motherly way or a fatherly way or I'll say parent way, whatever. You, I think you get the idea. Rather than trying to get rid of it uh, here, you know, with different things, you know, maybe substance abuse, sexual abuse, all kinds of spiritual abuse, (laughs) all kinds of things we do to come away from this thing we're feeling. So I came to this word tenderness through my name, Zenju, which is a Dharma name. My whole Dharma name is Ekai, an ocean of wisdom. And Zenju means complete or total tenderness. That's what Zenju means. So the names given in the Dharma are names that are your essence. So it's not, you don't even own it, really. It's just an essence. Like, you could be Zenju, too. (laughs) You know, it's an essence. And so the second name is the name um, my teacher said that you work on in your life. The first name is how people see you. And it's usually uh, associated with nature. My teacher is now passed. That's a Zenke Blanche Hartman. I want to honor her, too, as I'm speaking. So when they said my name, Zenju, in the ceremony, and they said, in complete tenderness, and everyone went, oh, wow, that's so nice. And then when I told people, I said, the second name is what you're not. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not. (laughs) 
So I didn't want to use that word Zenju. When I got it, I didn't use it. I kept trying to use Ekai, and my teacher was against it because Ekai is supposed to be informal, and that's you use your formal Dharma name, and these are her, what she had been taught. Eventually, a woman I was working with, she's a diviner, actually, an African Sangoma, South African Sangoma. She said, you need to use that name, Zenju. <laughs> you need to start using it, because I wasn't. I like Earthland very well. That's what my mother named me, Earthland. I love it. And um, so I said, okay, I'll try using Zenju. And that was the process of, like, tenderizing all the oppression and woundedness and pain that I had been dealing with since I was a kid, being assaulted, beat up, all kinds of things have happened to me, being turned away. It's still going on. I just had a a recent incident right here in Albuquerque at a winery. They would not serve me. Why not? My appearance. Yeah, she's... uh, Motioning by my appearance. Yeah, my face. face. They didn't want to serve me. Simply because you're black and a female? I had no idea. I I was standing there waiting for, it was a wine tasting time. I actually was waiting for the tacos outside, but they sent you into into the winery. So I went in anyway, and I was waiting there, just nothing, just me and the person, the retailer, standing there, and he just stood there, and I just stood there, and I was waiting and waiting, and that's, you know, that's usually not the case <laughs> at a winery. They even run right up to you with a glass, and what do you want to taste? And I, because I've been to a lot of them, you know, living in California. I now live in New Mexico. So I waited, and I said, well, do you have sherry? And I asked to taste that. And so he just grabbed the glass, and he, he gave me about an a eighth of a teaspoon of sherry. <laughs> You can't taste the sherry in an eighth of a teaspoon. So I just said, okay, maybe that's his demeanor. So I'll just take the sherry. It was okay. And then a whole group of people came, and and they were all white. And he went right over to them. Hello, how you doing? Welcome to Bali. Everything, (laughs) completely not what he did with me. Brought out all the glasses. What do you want to drink? What do you want? Let me know. And I was still standing there. Waiting for him to get the sherry I asked him to buy. He didn't even want to make the sale. That's how bad it was. So I could take that in, and I used to take those kind of things in and crumble, succumb to them. I could take action toward the winery, bring all my friends down and tell you. <laughs> but I did write a letter, so I did not do anything. And I sent them a, a picture of me and my Zen robes. <laughs> That's all. It's just a, like a very quiet, passive, I guess, protest. I did tell them what happened, exactly how it happened. I didn't add anything to it. I just said exactly how it happened. Did they get back to you? Uh, no. No. No one. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that happened. That sounds... <laughs> no one has gotten back. And there's nothing to be done, but I wanted to let them know. And I did say, I hope this is not all your employees. You know, I don't want to blame all of them. But that one person definitely was representing you. So I think these kinds of things can make you tender emotionally. And in the moment, I wasn't. I didn't have time to process it in that moment, really. I wanted to get my tacos, which was the reason why I came, because they had this new truck out there, and they were having these really wonderful different kinds of tacos, and I wanted to try Taco Tuesday. And that's all I was there for. And every time I feel my stomach flop or my heart jump in those kinds of experiences, because like I said, it was very in the body, it wasn't in the mind. I couldn't think it out or anything. But when I feel that in my body, I just feel that sensation and I allow it to process itself in my body. I don't take it to my mind. So I didn't go right away and write the letter because that would take it up there to my head. So I just stayed with it in the body. I know how to breathe with it, though, so that it's not harmful now. I know how to breathe with it and to allow the sensation that's happening that is older than me. (laughs) It's ancestral. And then it came into me, too, as I grew up, as who I am. And it it happened. It's been happening, and it's going to continue to happen 
even if racism is taken away and something else comes into play, let's say now I become the superior (laughs) being on the planet, there's something with that as well. There's a sensation in the body that's got to be not feel good. And so I think that I just, over time, that kind of thing would have paralyzed me. But I was still tender, but still able to engage and take action and not be pulled over to the curb by it, murdered by it. I took care of my body in it because I knew it was affecting my body with breath and stillness and breath and stillness. And I actually went and I didn't even leave the winery. I sat down right there. That's how I was able to watch him with the other group. I just sat there, but I wasn't watching him. I was watching me. (laughs) I didn't run out either. I I, I wanted so bad to hold on to this because it's that very thing that I am healing. But if I keep running away from that thing inside me that I'm healing, I will continue to let it be about other people white people, blue people, purple people. It would just be like that all the time. So in order to deal with my own tenderness and to transform that tenderness, the same thing I was talking about in the beginning, you know, having that dive and then lift and flight at the same time, I allow that to happen. And it's so confusing for the mind. So you can't draw the mind into it because the mind going, am I up or am I down? Am I up? You know, the mind mind gets too involved in what you're trying to feel. So tenderness has been a journey for me. And now have I accomplished it? No, that profound, liberating, you know, tenderness that I would like to have. And my teacher let me know. (laughs) You have to do this ceremony. It was so funny. It's cost you so, like you're a head student. And you have to do this questioning kind of ceremony in the end of your service as a head student. And when I got to the end, she said, I don't think you're tender enough yet. <laughs> in front of like, you know, 200 people. And, <laughs> and I thought it was good because she knows me. She knew that I wanted to accomplish tenderness. I'm going to accomplish this name. I'm going to become completely tender totally tender in a powerful, liberating way, where that when I express myself, you will feel it. You will know it. They will know it. Folks will see it. That's external. But I know that in, within me, that process is still going on and will till the day I die. I know that she set me on a course of Zenju, on a path of that. And for her to set a person who is um, black and queer and has experienced oppression all over her life every day was profound for her to invite tenderness into my life as a path of liberation, not as a wounding or in a paralyzed place or an emotional place. And I just really have been still sitting with it and will still sit with it. A lot of people say, well, I don't want to be tender, so I'm not reading your book. <laughs> <laughs> and and that's fine, because I know that they're the very ones that are not able to use their own tenderness, and they're afraid of it. We're afraid to be that way, to be vulnerable. It takes a, a particular person and path and development, I think, to do it. I don't think everyone can, and I don't suggest it for everyone. But I do present it as a possibility, that there is a possibility in everyone's life to have a liberatory and full life, not dictated and legislated and given, but one that is nurtured and grows within you, with your meditation, with your prayer, no matter who you are. You know, I feel like I have had a lot of training and suffering, (laughs) public at home and in the world. And and there's no way to get away from that other than to get away from people or die. And I chose to be with people. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you made that choice, personally. <laughs> you've made a few references to some of the difficulties you've experienced during the course of your life. Only if you're comfortable with it, I'd be interested to hear more about that and how it ultimately led you to Zen Buddhism. Being led to Zen Buddhism... I would have to say had nothing to do with Zen or Buddhism or Buddha 
or any of the terminology around it. Because the same thing, I was very much a, a Christian, and I still feel it in my blood. <laughs> and I I went to church into my 30s. I was very much not a not a evangelical Christian. I was raised in a Church of Christ, which has that aspect in it. But I was always curious about life and death. And I think the things that happened to me were so many places in which I almost died. Like, I have a lot of near-death experiences. I think more than I should have. But to be up on death so much, you know, so close all the time in my life, I think helps one develop a strong sense of tenderness as a powerful medicine and not as something that is to be ignored or is for weak people. How would you define tenderness? I know how it feels. <laughs> so that always comes <laughs> up first. It feels very vulnerable. I want to use the word open, but that's always so general to me. Like, what is that? And I feel like it's being completely engaged with one's heart in the moment, where one is in the moment, where the heart is. So a lot of people say, well, what if you're enraged? That's not the heart, that's the mind. If I'm enraged, it's the mind. I know that. I was enraged so much that in my beginning years of teaching, I remember being enraged, and I talk about, in my sangha remembers, I suspended myself from the sangha. (laughs) I said, I can't I got to go. I said, I'm not coming back for a little while because I knew if I stayed, I would hurt them. Even if I was speaking nicely, something would hurt. Or, and maybe I have because of my enragement, you know, it's because it's like you can see it in people's face. And then I could see their rage because they have hurt me too. It has been mutual. I can see their rage. So I really studied it, and I'm still studying rage. When I say that, I'm not reading books. <laughs> I'm, I'm allowing that I don't really know what it is. I speak the word, so I don't really know what tenderness is. I can just say I know I'm in my heart. It's a state of being in my heart. And that heart is, some people say heart-mind or heart-consciousness. So each part of our senses, right, is a consciousness. Eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose. All of our senses have a consciousness, and the heart does too. And so I'm working on heart consciousness all the time. I'm much, I feel like I'm much better at it because I'm able to bring myself through breath, through song, through meditation, through chanting, through stillness back to the heart and to stay close to the earth. Uh, The Deepest Peace was my kind of journey with the earth, that book that I wrote that came out December 2020. And I wrote that book in a way that people would experience tenderness. You could say peace is part of it. I didn't want people actually to walk away with, like they could actually quote me or gain knowledge, that it wasn't a book of knowledge and quoting me, as they did with The Way of Tenderness, Our Sanctuary, those other two books. And I was wondering if anybody would pick it up at all. Because <laughs> it had, to me, that touch of tenderness in it. And at a time when everyone is feeling completely the opposite, if not intensified rage. So... If they see the word peace, they might not want that. But the peace I'm not talking about is where you still engage, you still have your rage, you still have whatever. As a human being, you might still um, be part of movements, but at the same time, there's this poetry of life. Much more of my conversation with Zenju Earthland Manuel right after this. I love cats. I make no secret of that. We've got four cats. But here's the thing about felines. They poop a lot. You need kitty litter, and you need that kitty litter to do the job, which is why I'm proud to recommend Tidy Care Alert, which has long-lasting ammonia control so your house or your apartment or your yurt or wherever you live does not smell like you have four cats or however many cats you happen to have. No judgment here. It's low dust and lightweight, which means no lugging heavy bags of cat litter up the stairs 
and it's from the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. Tidy Care Alert uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help put your mind at ease. Let Tidy Care Alert help keep an eye on your cat's health. It's spring, and that means it's graduation season, and I've got an idea for an incredibly fun graduation gift or party favor. Did you know that you can get personalized M&Ms? You can choose from over 20 colors and add your graduate's name, graduation-themed graphics, or photos, which are printed directly on the candy. I recently got a sample of some of these personalized M&Ms. Uh, they showed up in my mailbox. They got my face on them, which makes it a little bit awkward for me to eat them personally. I'm doing it anyway. The M&Ms I got also include the words 10% happier, to which I have a deep attachment. I was kind of thrilled uh, when I saw them. I was wondering if they were a gift from somebody on the uh, 10th anniversary of the 10% happier book. Turns out they weren't. They were a gift from uh, M&Ms, who are now a sponsor of this show. So thank you, M&Ms. Uh, for sponsoring this show and for the delicious treat. You can visit MMS.com to create your own unique custom gifts and memorable party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code HAPPIER to receive 15% off your next order. Well, let me throw a question at you and we'll see what happens. I'm a little worried just because it's a big question, but we'll see what happens. Okay, I'll try. (laughs) (laughs) With apologies, there's a sentence or two that you wrote, two sentences, that just caught my attention. Here it is. I'm not advocating love as an answer to all of the ills of the world. Then again, it is just that simple to be love. Yes. I have a little pamphlet, and it's free. (laughs) On Amazon called Be Love. And I have, I think the poem's in there too, on um, being, being love. And it was part of the tenderness journey. Without naming love, but having experience where I have felt love, instead of trying to capture that and give it as a thing or object or take it away, <laughs> withdraw it from people, I wondered what the experience would be to be love and what that would look like. I think be love is, has sold more books, maybe just because it's free, but has da- been downloaded from Amazon more than anything I've written. And um, I was exploring our kind of like love as a deep desire, how we feel like it's outside or we have to do something to receive it or that we think that our hearts can be closed. And we can close off to people and things and places, but our hearts don't close. They never close. So even in our thinking, we're closing off this feeling of love. We can call it love. Even in that, we have the um, maybe anger and rage or dislike of someone, even to spend time to have that there's love in it. Otherwise, you wouldn't have anything. <laughs> you would just be numb. Love is, I think about babies, and I write about that coming into the world, and I think they come to teach us love. We don't teach them. They show it. As soon as they're born, everybody's all over that baby, mostly. Even if their parents aren't, somebody's all over that baby. Somebody in the world. And that baby, unconditionally, without a word, just its being, its essence, its being born, is teaching us love. The baby teaches the parents love. And if the parents are unable to learn it, then there's trouble. And that's how I try to be love, is to remember that experience. I've been around a lot of babies. I've been around people who have died on one end. I've been around a lot of babies. I love being around children. I love children. I love them. All the way up to when they're sassy. <laughs> you know, teenagers. I, I love them. I love the sassy, actually, teenagers more. Uh, but I, I love them and um, what they teach us. 
You know, they're so profound in their language, in their being, even when they're angry and ugly <laughs> and having a fit, you know. <laughs> it, I just, there's just something about them that cannot be ignored. So be love is to be in just in that direct experience of being in the world every moment without judgment, without being an expert, without making a project to fix something but just being, you know, not knowing. Baby doesn't know which one's the mother or the father. <laughs> They're just looking. There's a practice in Buddhism of watching people die, but I think it's a great practice to watch babies <laughs> and watch them look around and see if you can develop that kind of scene. Just looking. No judgment, no nothing. Not knowing, nothing. You hear a voice, you hear, you see a person just being like that, which will allow space for hopefully an experience of love, whatever that is. Not love itself, but an experience of love, because we don't know that either, really. We're just here practicing every minute. <laughs> It's been really nice to sit with you for this time today. I really appreciate your time. And just in closing... You mentioned a few of the names of your books, but can you just list them off again for folks who want to who want to dive in and and maybe anything that any other resources you have out there that people might want to access? Yeah, I think if you're a beginner around Buddhism, I have a book called "Tell Me Something About Buddhism," but it's it's very different. All my books are different than what the title says, so you're not going to get the same. Um, answers as you may get in other books, because I do use my life experience, even my experience in being in church, what God means to me and Jesus. It's all in there. It's all in. Tell me something about Buddhism. It's a Q&A kind of book with illustrations that I did. There is The Way of Tenderness, Awakening Through Race, Sexuality, and Gender. And I always tell people, you know, if you get that book, I didn't write a book about Dharma and race, whereas some books are that way. I wrote a book about awakening, and race and sexuality and gender were gateways. So everyone has a gateway. Find your gateway. Read the book, find your gateway. <laughs> could be illness, could be death, could be anything. It's not a book on race or sexuality or gender. <laughs> and then there's um, Sanctuary, a meditation on home and homelessness, of course, in a spiritual sense. And then I wrote a book on, let's see, after that, okay, The Deepest Peace just came out December 2020. Deepest Peace, Contemplations from a Season of Stillness. And I actually wrote most of that here in, in New Mexico. On February the 8th will come the book called uh, The Shamanic Bones of Zen. And it's the ancestral, looking at the ancestral spirit and mystical heart of a sacred tradition. And what I'm trying to do is bring, I really could say Buddhism, but I haven't studied all Buddhism, so I just said Zen. But I'm trying to bring back our, you know, focus on the, um, the sacred rituals and ceremonies of Buddhism and how I feel we only have a tiny baby fingernail of transmission, that there's so much missing, you know, because it is ritual and ceremony. It's very hard to, to transmit and transmit uh, that to, make it a transmission to the world. So I feel like we're missing a lot. And I talk about how uh, colonialism affected uh, the Buddhism we practice and how it affected the indigenous uh, Japanese religions and, and traditions, spiritual traditions. Uh, Buddhism uh, impacted them a lot. And then uh, I have a novel coming out next year called The, uh, the Waters of L'Espoir, and it takes place in Haiti. That one is, is spiritual, spiritual, magical, historical fiction. You're a busy Buddhist. I love it. <laughs> Thank you again for, for doing this. It was great to meet you, if only virtually, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you again for inviting me, and hope we stay connected. Likewise, likewise. Thanks again to Zenju. Great to meet her. 
This show is made by Samuel Johns, Gabrielle Zuckerman, DJ Kashmir, Justine Davey, Kim Baikama, Maria Wortel, and Jen Poyant with audio engineering by Ultraviolet Audio. We'll see you all on Wednesday for a brand new episode with Matthew Hepburn. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.